We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. As President Kennedy delivered this speech to a packed football stadium at Rice University in Houston, the United States was in the midst of an intense space race with the Soviet Union. Following the end of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union became engaged in an ideological conflict that would last for much of the later 20th century. Kennedy wanted to inspire the American people to support the Apollo mission, to be the first to land a man on the moon. This goal to reach uncharted territory required Americans to push the boundaries of scientific knowledge and live up to their pioneering heritage. Many of those pushing the scientific envelope worked for the Air Force's Aeronautical Chart and Information Center and the Army Map Service, both NGA predecessor organizations. Dr. Gary Weir, NGA's historian, gave us a tour of the lunar exhibit at the NGA Museum in Springfield, Virginia, and talked about the nation's excitement of going to the moon and the tradecraft involved in getting there. Well, one of the reasons we put this exhibit together, one of the many reasons, not only because the agency supported the lunar and, and other space-related efforts, was because I grew up in this era. When I was in grade school, I used to get up early in the morning, you know, getting a guide to get up early in the morning to go to school, not likely, right? I would go to the television set and watch the coverage of the old uh, the Mercury shots, you know, with, uh, with Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom and, and John Glenn and the others. The entire country was wrapped up in it. It was like a, like a sort of a low-grade mania. You know, people just were so absolutely enthralled by the possibility. And this, this sort of covered my entire youth because that's where I started, and they landed on the moon the summer after I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the span. And just like when you walk into the exhibit, the first thing we offer you is something relative to the lunar experience, okay? Mm-hmm. The glass negative slides that we have, well, we have many of them. One of the most beautiful that we have is the, is the slide that shows the moon itself, okay? And these are from the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. We not only did things on glass so they can be preserved over time, but glass is much more stable than celluloid. Mm-hmm. It was a film. But if you look at the next case, as, you, as we walk down the aisle here, uh, there's, a, there's an atlas here. Atlas is very conventional. You can go to the library and see any atlas you want. Well, here we have NGA legacy agencies like Army Map Service, AMS, and ACIC, the Aeronautical Chart and Information Center, producing these atlases. Now, the difference between those two organizations was Army Map Service remained with the Army, of course. But ACIC didn't come into being until the early 1950s. And what happens in between? In 1947, the air power arm of the Army is broken off to create the Air Force. So ACIC becomes an Air Force entity working out of St. Louis. So they do become separate, but they have similar roots. And both organizations supported all of the space efforts, including the lunar landing. And they were working on it before. Yes, they were. They were working on it before because it, it's our moon. You know, and having... Having data regarding the moon, its distance, its topography, and everybody sort of thought we wanted to go there at some point. But after 1957, things become remarkably different, right? The Soviet Union puts Sputnik up into orbit, mm-hmm. and it becomes a I can beat you, and I will not be defeated by you mentality. So things really begin to accelerate at that point. It's much more aggressive. 
Aggressive yeah. isn't the word for it. No. Aggressive was, it was, it was a war. It was a low-grade war. It was part of the Cold War experience. All right, so it's, uh, you have to uh, characterize it in that way. But for Americans, it was much more positive than that. Initially, Sputnik was a bit frightening because they had the capability to put a satellite in orbit. They also had the capability to launch a rocket to reach the American homeland. All right. Of course, we could do the exact same thing, but it didn't make life any easier or less filled with anxiety. But the positive byproduct of this are things like these slides, are things like this, these, these atlases that we created that were open to the public to understand. One of the things that came home to me dramatically, I didn't get to see when I was young the kinds of things that ACIC produced or AMS produced, mm -hmm. but my mother got Life magazine. She was a subscriber for years. And I remember the Life magazine showing up the first time we actually saw a, not an artist rendition, a photograph of the entire Earth from the surface of the moon. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Hey, don't take that from schedule. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh will you? man, that's crazy. Where is it? Quick. Two fifty at F eleven. Okay. Now there's very explosion. I did. I picked you up there. You sure you got it now? Yeah, we'll get well it'll come up again. It was the first time anybody in this country or any other country had seen it all in one shot. And there it was on the front of Time Life magazine. That's what we look like. Right, so the effect of that was, it was quite dramatic, actually. It took us out of ourselves. So it's not only the Alice's that we're talking about, but other things as well. Um, if you walk into a library or a school classroom, no matter what the level, you may find atlases, of course. You may find you know, maps like the, the mosaic maps that we created from individual lunar shots taken by telescope or by satellite. But you will also have things like a globe. Every classroom has a globe. Only in this case, right, our legacy agencies were producing a globe of the moon based on imagery, based on whatever data that we had up to that point in time. It was the lunar globe that we have here, we have three of them of the original generation. Uh, we have one out in St. Louis at our museum there, one here in our, St. In our museum at the Springfield here, and one that just come back from a loan to a museum down in the Southwest. The Dunoyer Geppert Company actually built it, but all the data and all the artwork was AMS and ACIC. Okay. And Can that's, you talk about the process? Of course, yeah. of course. The, uh, we have to remember that this is, well, for this era, a Commodore 64 would have been advanced. You know, a primitive computer, personal computers didn't exist really. Okay. Computers were giant mainframes owned by companies and, and, and federal government agencies. So everything was done by hand, by and large. The photography was taken and developed by hand. The mosaics, of course, were done by people arranging them by hand. We did mosaics for terrestrial purposes as well as for lunar purposes. So it was something that we had done for a very long time. Uh, in terms of actually rendering things in a map, sometimes we forget maps, maps are so ubiquitous that, oh, it's a map. It's, there's no, you know, no big deal here, right? I could pick it up at the gas station or Barnes & Noble. But if you take a look at it, the color is important. The precision is important. The clarity is important. Because if it's not there, the map is useless as a tool. Mm -hmm. 
and it was intended to be a tool, eh? right? So we have a situation here where we have to include not only the technology, satellite technology, not only people looking through telescopes, not only the people doing the mapping skills, but also the artists who have to render this stuff so people can see it precisely and accurately. Imagine the moon. How many craters are there on the moon? You count. I don't know. But the point is, every single one has got to be outlined properly. The shading's got to be right, or else the map or the globe is utterly useless. Mm -hmm. So all those components come together, and they're all hand-done. They're all manual. Right? They're not digital at all. They're analog. Right? So the three globes we have are very important. And even airbrushing. Um, yes. The, the photos here of the of the artist actually hand airbrushing these. Right. And as you can see, as you walk down the line here, just, just beyond the globe, we have actually an airbrush in the case. Yeah. Now, people say, what's unusual about an airbrush? An airbrush is a component here that's absolutely vital because look at the images above it. Here we have people who are artists who can take the data and the imagery and render them in such a way that people can actually use them in terms of maps and find in their locations, whether they do it in 3D form or whether they do it flat on a piece of paper and require a 3D rendition as an artist can, can provide. Now, for, we sort of looked into that in a way. We had images of it. We knew NASA built it from scratch. You know, it was not an NGA product or an ACIC product. But we knew components of it did belong to us. So I called my colleague over at NASA, my fellow historian, Steve Garber, and asked them if they had in their archive the specs for this simulator, which is long since gone. He said, yeah, we've got it, and they found it for us. So I went to a 3D model shop over at Langley, and I said, can you, can you render this for us? And they did. That's why we have the model in the collection. But the importance of the model being there in the exhibit is the fact that NASA built the whole thing, except for the lunar surface simulations. That was all AMS and ACIC. All of their data. Exactly. Yeah. All of their data, their artwork, the photography, everything that went into the, into the, uh, the atlases and the globes went into this as well, although now it's 3D. Mm -hmm. And it's in different scales because, of course, the simulator is designed to allow the astronauts to see the moon at distance, to see it closer and then closer and then closer and then closer. So by the time they actually get there, what they're looking at, they've already seen it. And many of them commented about the fact that they had, could indeed actually pick out pieces parts that they were looking at on the lunar surface because they had already discovered it back on Earth in the simulator. It was so accurate. Precisely. It was very accurate. You know, that's why, you know, the skills that we have here, very often we look at our imagery analysts as only the only people who really work with imagery. That's not so. Our cartographic people have been working with imagery for decades, and they also use photogrammetric techniques, mm -hmm. you know, to look at size, shape, angle, you know, shadow, all of these things that allow you to make more of a photograph than otherwise might be the case, to derive more from the photograph, right? So in order to, to render that properly, you have to have a good idea of, 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 the, of the, the spatial aspect of it, the geospatial aspect of it. And so you've got a situation where, while NASA built it, we made it effective. So in other words, they could, they could run back and forth across the, the simulator and see it on a screen in their, in their orbital simulator. But what they were actually seeing was the real moon, the way it actually looked. You know, we found that they had you know, little railway cars you know, mm -hmm. with, the, with the cameras on them, you know, moving at, at whatever speed they wanted to, set, wanted to set them. And they were sending the TV transmission you know, essentially to a central box, wow. which would then send it to the simulator that the astronauts were actually sitting in. 
so they can actually see it. You know? So these guys are probably in a, a mock-up of the limb, the lunar you know, module that was actually going to land, all right? and they could see what Neil Armstrong eventually saw you know, when they approached the moon in 69, in July of 69. But the thing is that, you know, we could, we could do all of that because we were experienced cartographers, mm -hmm. and we had been for a very long time, because we were working on the moon for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Also because we were used to being lunar supporters of the federal government, because after all, we had supported both the Mercury and the Gemini program, mm -hmm. because in the exhibit you'll also find orbital tracks rendered as maps from both programs, as well as a lot of the satellite imagery that we have made available to the visitors who come into the museum. Well, let me, let me tell a story. My, my very, very able curator we've just brought on board, she's of an age where she doesn't know this stuff. You know, the excitement that, you know, came along with the space program, I asked her to go look at the film, The Right Stuff, and she left. You're prescribing films now? I said, sometimes the film is right, sometimes the film is wrong, there's too much drama and all the rest, but the one thing that it does capture is the way the entire idea captured the whole country and really mobilized people mm -hmm. to want to get up at O'Dog 30 in the morning to watch the rocket go up, all right? To think that we were actually going beyond our own world was fascinating for people, mm -hmm. and it really gripped the entire country. So the country was united toward this common goal, to put a man on the moon, but what was it like to work with the team who did it? Al Anderson is an NGA alumnus who, back in the day, managed the Army Map Service team that provided mapping and charting support to the lunar mission. So what was your role in that project, and what was it like working on it? Mm -hmm. Well, let me back up and say that um, when uh, President Kennedy announced uh, the goal of um, landing uh, a man on the moon uh, before the end of the 1960s and safely returning him to Earth. Um, it was a, NASA loved the challenge, but there, you know, it was a huge undertaking. Everything had to be invented, everything had to be developed, everything mm -hmm. had to be tested and then trained. Um, it hardware, software, procedures, uh, clothing, and so forth. Uh, everything new. Mm -hmm. So. So it was a mad dash uh, to do all that. Um, and of course also the, the uh, lunar surface had to be uh, explored in advance with unmanned vehicles mm -hmm. to make sure that the soil wasn't so deep that everything would just sink out of sight. Yeah. In other words, that you could land there safely and, and move around. And, and that was the surveyor series that did that. But uh, as part of that uh, overall effort, the Department of Army and Air Force uh, both agreed to uh, provide mapping and charting support for NASA for the lunar program. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of the Army, uh, uh, I was working in for the Chief of Engineers who had uh, Army staff responsibility for all mapping, charting, surveying activities of the of the Army worldwide, um, and the the project was given to me to to manage, and it was being executed at the Army Map Service, which fell under the uh, mm -hmm. Chief of Engineers. The Air Force uh, uh, turned to the of course to the Aeronautical Charting Information Center out in St. Louis. The Army Map Service put together a, a, a 
little team of about 14 people, very energetic, uh, bright, eager young men. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, the, the requirement was to uh, produce small-scale charts and atlases for the general planning purposes and in large-scale maps of the, in, of the uh, landing sites, or the candidate landing sites, of which there were 20. Wow. Uh, and then uh, also plastic relief maps of them and then uh, uh, relief models for use in their simulators. How did you choose the landing sites? Well, uh, NASA did that. Uh, after examining the... Uh, see the let me uh, put in here that the, the imagery was collected from uh, unmanned uh, mm-hmm. satellites which uh, did not return to Earth. There's a lunar orbiter series. And uh, I think there was something like five, yeah, I think it was five missions. And since this was a pre-digital era in terms of uh, imagery photography, the imagery was uh, processed, developed from film on board the uh, spacecraft and then uh, uh, scanned and radioed back to Earth where it was reconstituted. Wow. Uh, so that that gave us the first good look at the lunar surface uh, up fairly close. And that's what they used then in determining where they would, uh, where the candidate landing sites would be. And then further analysis from things like the Surveyor series resulted in the final selection. So uh, so that was the imagery. Oh, and I should add also that um, when we got involved, we found that um, the process that had to be used, the scanning and radioing back to Earth and reconstituting uh, was subject to introducing lots of different systematic and non-systematic errors. So almost at the 11th hour, our people persuaded NASA to put a result plate in, a result plate being little ticks at, a, at a specified intervals, which would then, uh, there were tiny ticks, but they would show up on a film, or the reconstituted film, and through that we could reconstitute much uh, of the geometry. Mm. And that's how we got the accuracy that we did achieve. There was, uh, you know, there was a tremendous sense of urgency. Uh, Nothing was routine. Everything was needed today or maybe yesterday. (laughs) And uh, despite all that rush, uh, the Houston people were unfailingly uh, cordial and and supportive and appreciative of of our efforts. and we never felt like we were being overly pressed because we all were so committed to this thing. Mm-hmm. And even at, at Army Map Service, and I'm sure the same way at the uh, Air Chart and Information Center on St. Louis, even if you weren't directly involved in that project, as these 14 young men were, um, everyone was so excited and proud of having this role that anything those guys needed was they they had just a blank check for whatever they felt they needed and uh, Mm -hmm. the support was immediate from 
anybody at their in those agencies. Well, and a lot of people have talked about not even within the agencies, but just in the country in general, that there was a sense of excitement. Oh yes, it you know it was a tremendous boost for the country. Uh, here we were, uh, looked like we were losing the space race. They were the first. The Russians were the Soviets were the first ones to get a satellite in orbit. They were the first ones to put a man up in orbit, and in general, we were the country was depressed uh, and concerned. So Kennedy's goal was a, a shot in the arm for the whole country and and uh, just riveted attention, um, which it made it even more demanding and that that we succeed yeah. with that undertaking. Beyond that, we, we made lots of trips down to Houston. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they were important. And, uh, and to give you a sense also of the urgency of the situation, uh, several members of the um, Army Masterbrist team were needed to go down to Houston for a meeting. Well, they got as far as Atlanta, and it was fogged in. and um, no. No planes were uh, coming in anymore or departing. So they called down to Houston and said, sorry, we can't make it. Houston, we have a problem. He said, yeah. They said, yes, you can. And NASA arranged for a bus to bring them back to Washington and then take a different flight down there. And they got, they got to their meeting. <laughs> Nothing was going to get in the way, uh, not even a fog. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a sense. At any rate, uh, we had a lot of interaction with them, including with the astronauts. One of the astronauts happened to have a PhD in geology, so he was designated as our main point of contact, Jack Schmidt. Jack was a very fine person to work with, and he did get into the last mission to go up there. He'd been scheduled on Apollo 18. It got scrubbed. And so I guess NASA decided it was so important to get this man up there, mm -hmm. a, a highly professional geologist, that they bumped somebody else from 17, um, trained him how to, to fly that uh, lunar lander, and uh, he made that mission. Mm. Uh, so that was, uh, I think uh, I mentioned the, the lunar, uh, Maps, Army Map Service did were large scale, and some of them were uh, paper maps plasticized with plastic coating so that they would mm -hmm. withstand any moisture, whatever, were uh, uh, taken on board and uh, to help the, guide them when they would go out and exploring on the moon. And on one of the last missions, uh, uh, the astronaut uh, commander Cernan, um, just after they get up there, and, and uh, he accidentally um, bro broke one of the fenders on the uh, um, lunar uh, uh, excursion vehicle, the limb, and uh, they started driving out, and they found out the dust was coming up mm. and clinging to their masts and. They, soon wouldn't be able to see. So they radioed down to Houston to explain their problem. And some bright engineer down there said, take one of those uh, maps and duct tape and make your own fender. 
and it works so well that although those uh, uh, landing vehicles, uh, the excursion vehicle, uh, was left up there, they, they took that fender off, brought it back to Earth, and you can see it today uh, in the Air and Space Museum uh, down in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Wow. It's worth a look. And, so the, map, uh, the maps were useful in many ways. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. We <laughs> served in anticipated and unanticipated ways. I mean, clearly we've continued a lot of this work. Um, and obviously, you know, with um, developments in technology and things, they may be doing it different ways now. But but we've continued this mm -hmm. study. Well, of course, it's, it's, it's our only uh, uh, satellite. Uh, natural satellite and uh, something big we can always see and uh, so just the, the challenge of getting there uh, was something that the interest and the challenge of it never goes away I suppose. Roger, we copy. Yeah. Pretty good little job. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. You've probably heard that clip before, but if not, spoiler alert, the United States reached its goal of landing on the moon in 1969, and Neil Armstrong got to say those famous words. But what now? Is there more to explore? How much do we really know about the moon? To get the answers to these and many other questions, we went straight to NASA. Here's Dr. Noah Petro. I'm a lunar geologist here at NASA Goddard. I've been here now uh, just over 10 years. Uh, the last seven of which have been a civil servant working on studying lunar and planetary processes. Um, but one of the, the cool things I get to do is I'm the deputy project scientist for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been orbiting the moon now uh, continuously since uh, 2009. It's the longest lived lunar orbiting mission of all time uh, in terms of conducting science continuously. Um, it's an incredible experience. It's been an amazing opportunity. Uh, and really allows me to continue my passion for studying the moon, which has gone on now my entire professional career, even into my childhood. My father was an engineer who helped build parts for the Apollo program. And so this is sort of in my blood is studying and working on the moon. So why do you think it's so important for us to learn about it, learn about our moon? I, uh, so that's a great question. I personally, and I, this is not something I've ever like, vetted and is not accepted by the community, but if I would have to explain to someone why is the moon important, I'd say the moon is the eighth continent of the Earth. Geologists study the rocks on the Earth to understand how the Earth works. And we learn a lot about the fundamental processes of geology, mountain building, erosion, uh, tectonism, all of the wonderful geology that occurs on the Earth. But the moon offers us an opportunity to study processes that are more you know, ubiquitous throughout the solar system, impact cratering, uh, interactions of the space environment with the surfaces of planets, um, volcanism on planets that don't have water uh, or abundant water, uh, volcanism on planets that don't have plate tectonics, how do planets respond to being gravitationally pulled and tweaked, which the moon gets pulled and tweaked by the Earth. Uh, so the moon is this 
I mean, it's an extension of the Earth. One of the theories about how the moon formed is that it was debris from an impact into the Earth, so that it really you know, is an extension of the Earth quite literally, but also I think metaphorically it's an extension of the Earth because it is, again, it's three days away for, for humans to get to its our nearest neighbor in space. It occupies the same, as I call it, corner of the solar system. It is an extension of the Earth, and so by studying it, hopefully we learn not just about the moon, but also about the, the Earth as well. Mm -hmm. In particular, what happened very early in the Earth's history, which is not recorded well on the Earth's surface because of erosion and plate tectonics, this great recycling of the crust of the Earth has pretty much erased the record of that earliest history of the solar system, which is so beautifully preserved, although difficult to interpret, but preserved on the lunar surface. Um, you know, the, the, the Earth's moon is, is unique as moons go in the solar system compared to the size of the Earth, it's very large. Think of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, those are tiny relative to those enormous planets. The moons of, of Mars are you know, very small, asteroid-like moons. Our moon is very unique. And um, I, I think it, 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 it's not a too bad coincidence that we have this wonderful object um, in the night sky but also you know, so close to us that allows us to, to really, again, better understand the rules of, of how planets work. Well, we've been studying it for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. even back way before the space race, but mm -hmm. maybe ramped up a little during the space yep. race. How much has technology evolved and what, you know, how much more have we learned? Um, and what more is there to learn? Well, well, that's a, that's a difficult question, question <laughs> but I mean, it's a good question. So, you know, I think, and some folks have done this, if you were to plot sort of our interpretation of the moon, it has increased as a function of the resolving power of how we can look at the surface of it, whether you're looking, you know, whether it's the early telescopes looking at the surface. Oh, flat areas that might be water, that might be oceans, let's call them mare. And as our ability to study the surface, the near side surface with Earth-based telescopes, and then eventually start putting ob objects flying past them or orbiting them, um, again, the resolving power of being able to study the surface, see the surface up close, uh, has not only increased our understanding of what the surface is like, but also what's going on there, what's, this, what's happening to the surface. So, you know, the moon is a great place for studying, as I said before, all of these processes, but because we have samples from the surface and we have now such a wealth of mm -hmm. remote data, can really, I don't know, tell really robust stories that no other planet really allows us to do yet. Can you talk about some of the legacy data? I mean, do you still use that historic data from way back when as? Absolutely, I mean, every picture of the moon is unique. Um, one of the things about looking at pictures of the moon, you know, just standard pictures of the moon, whether it's telescopic Earth-based images, which the very early lunar maps were, were generated from, or images from our spacecraft coming down today from the, the, the camera, is that depending on the illumination conditions, whether you're looking at a full moon or a crescent moon, and depending on where, what part of the moon is, different features pop out. And so, I mean, in my mind, you almost always have to go back, especially if you're looking at broad areas, larger areas, and look at the full spectrum of images that we have, whether it's Earth-based telescopic or not. Now, the data we have from, from, from orbit of the moon is obviously got incredible resolution, 50 centimeters per pixel. We can see the boot prints of astronauts. We can see the rover tracks. Um, but you need a broader view as well to, to really get context. And so um, we have data that allows us to do that as well. But I mean, I, I 
writing a, 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 a getting ready to give a presentation now and I went back and found Apollo era images mm -hmm. to use because those were taken at very specific illumination conditions and maybe we don't have that illumination geometry in, in, from our spacecraft right now so all of this data comes together to tell the story. Now not everybody goes back and uses that, that, that data, some of it's not easily accessible mm -hmm. but um, certainly it's a great place to start going back to just the broad regional view of the moon or of an area that we got from you know, the And even like you said, just to provide some additional context, exactly. right? Exactly. So. Um, it's, it's very valuable to do that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the tools or technology that you use? You know, we were talking about the simulator that they built back during the space race mm -hmm. and how back then, I mean, everything had to be done by hand and it, it almost looked like something out of a George Lucas film, right? It was, <laughs> yep. it was huge and mm -hmm. it was, you know, built on a, you know, on a track and, um, so how has the technology evolved and what kind of things do you, visualization tools sure. can you use now? Yeah, so there's a couple tools that we use now to, to really interact with the, the data that we have. And, you know, to start where those early landing site simulation tools used an image and, okay, we know that the sun was this far above the horizon so we can estimate how high that mountain might be or that deep that crater might be and so we'll make our simulation that looks like that you know there's a certain artistry to that mm -hmm. well now we've got this topography for the moon this incredible topographic data set courtesy of the the lunar orbiting laser altimeter lola on our spacecraft for instance that gives us the most accurate topographic map of any planet in the solar system mm -hmm. so from that and higher resolution topography from our camera we can we sort of take the artistry out of that. We know what shape those craters are. Um, we know what it's going to look like when we get there. And you don't have to airbrush it. No airbrushing, <laughs> right. So there's, I mean, the artistry is, is, is different. Yeah. I guess it's the artistry and the interpretation rather than the generation of the, yeah. the product. But when we want to visualize what it will be like to, to land in some place or what it will look like to sit on the, stand on the surface, we can do that with the data that we have in hand. And so we've got folks here at Goddard in the Scientific Visualization Studio who can take all that data and make you know, a 3D rendering of what it will be like to be on the surface or flying into the surface. Um, certainly the, the other tools that are, are really widely used are the sort of geospatial information systems, the GIS systems, mm -hmm. allow you to interact with multiple data sets. Um, you know, early on it was just telescopic data, it was just images basically. But now we've got images, topography, composition, rock abundance, there's a laundry list of layers that we can add, just raw data, and then on top of that we can place in interpretations of geology, ages, and things like that. So um, it's a data-rich environment in, in, in studying the moon, and um, which is good because I think when we want to study any place on the moon, you want to have as much information about the properties of the surfaces as you can have. What about collaboration? So one thing that um, you know NGA has faced over the last few years is that we're not the only game in town mm -hmm. when it comes to satellite imagery. Um, so obviously, you know, we've been partnering with a lot of different organizations. So who does NASA partner with? You know, do you work on problems with anyone else? Do you get data from anyone else? Sure. So I mean, there, and there's different types of of of, of data from from the moon. You know, in the last 10 years, there's been orbiters from a number of different countries. Uh, some countries and some missions have their data published and, and available online very readily, mm -hmm. go and interact with it the same way that all of our data is publicly available. 
uh, and some data sets are harder to work with. Mm. So what's been your biggest OMG moment or your biggest discovery that, that got you really excited? Well, every day there's a different OMG moment. Um, <laughs> the, yep, the, I said it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it's true. And, but, you know, we all we have those still, and that's an important thing is we still have those yeah. moments where we say, whoa, this is really interesting on the moon. There is this misconception that there are no mysteries left. Well, we've been to the moon, and, and so we must know everything. No, 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 no. We, we still are learning things about the moon that either contradict 40 years of experience. So we've learned in the last 10 years that there's water on the moon, there's water in the moon. For decades, there was this belief that the moon was uh, figurative, figuratively bone dry. There's no water on the moon. Turns out that there is water on the moon. There's water in the moon. There's water on the lunar surface. The moon is now literally bone dry. just because there's water in bones. So that was a moment where we so, and it was a, that was hard because we had drilled in our minds, there's no water on the moon, no water on the moon. And we had this data set and now multiple data sets that say, no, there is water on the moon. And not just in a few locations at the poles that are really cold. And so maybe they just store water from passing comets or something like that. But that actually water gets implanted on the moon and is found deep in the interior of the moon. You say, that challenges all of our preconceived notions. All of the conventional wisdom gets, not to say thrown out the door, but revisited and has to be scrubbed. So that was, a, that was definitely an OMG moment. More recently for me, I've been working with uh, Harrison Schmidt, Jack Schmidt, who walked on the moon on Apollo 17. He's the only geologist to go to the moon. And he, using the data from LRO, is re-evaluating his landing site. And so we're taking a lot of time at looking at the new data and either finding new things or reinterpreting, again, 45 years worth of, of, of beliefs about what they did there um, in December 1972. And so that's been kind of an OMG moment for me because not only am I working with someone who, who walked on the moon and helped train all of the previous moonwalkers and was a fundamental part of Apollo, but also realizing that even for a place that we've been, we're still making new discoveries. So that, those two for me have been, you know, one has been kind of a community-wide OMG moment and for the other, much more personal moment of, of re-evaluating a place that we've been. And again, if we're learning new things about a place we've been, you can only imagine what we're learning about places that we have yet to go. What's the atmosphere, sorry, excuse the pun. Yeah. What's the atmosphere like? You know, we talked about during the space race especially mm -hmm. that everybody in the whole country was just so excited. Um, and and even you know at NASA everyone knew yeah we're gonna put a man on the moon that's what we're gonna do so um, I mean it's good to hear you know obviously you said you're still excited about mm -hmm. you know new so what's the future what's the next big thing that we're looking to do well uh, we don't know yet uh, you know the, the next big thing for me is to make sure that LRO stays active you know and now NASA is not and the international partners the international space agencies are not the only um, see organizations that can that want to go to the moon you've got right. private commercial enterprises that want to get to the moon uh, my hope is our, our when I say our I mean the community's hope is that um, when whichever organization gets to the surface that science comes along and it's not just where well, we've landed we've landed and we've brought this very small instrument to the surface um, again any time we get to the lunar surface there's an opportunity to make some really fundamental uh, observations measurement measurements that can just, you know, enhance our understanding of of the moon. You know, the last time the U.S. landed anything on the lunar surface was with Apollo 17 in December of 1972. Again, a lot to learn from getting to the surface, and so that's mm -hmm. probably the next big thing is getting to the surface. 
Um, there's still a lot to left to learn from lunar orbit as well. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that there's mm -hmm. there's plenty that we can learn uh, about just again fundamentals of how planets work uh, and interact with the sun um, from lunar orbit as well. But uh, yeah, the moon is this great template for understanding everything, at least in our solar system and other solar systems in the universe. And again, that's why that legacy data is so important. Yep, exactly. I mean, going back to you know our first global maps of the moon and, and even just images of the near side and saying, you know, okay, what is the moon like? What's the state of the moon? It's not as easy a question as, as you'd like it to be, Yeah. but it's there. Do we want to talk about how you still have paper maps? I mean, sure. We can talk about, it. so, I mean, one of the, talk about just the working with the, yeah. so the, one of the big changes in going from the early map products is that they were made available broadly in paper form, either printed images or paper maps, uh, large format paper maps. But if you didn't have it, you had to request that, sent it to you, or you had to go and work with it yourself. It was this this resource, um, and so paper maps for decades were the or, or books, mm -hmm. <laughs> actual paper books, atlases, atlases were, were the, the, the 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 one way to interact with the data. And as we've entered this digital world. Um, you know, some of those atlases, I mean, honestly, I mean, I have some of those old atlases still, the rectified lunar atlas and mm -hmm. things like that, that, you know, they're digital versions of it, but I love to have a paper copy and look at it up close. You know, there are high quality scans of some of these things. Some of these objects have never been digitized in a satisfactory manner. Um, and that's really important. But now in the digital age, all of our data is digital, it's all digitally recorded but we do still produce paper maps. The U.S. Geologic Survey in particular is the sort of the official map production agency for NASA's maps, for planetary maps. And so we've produced uh, at least two official USGS global maps of the moon, both for the image, uh, uh, images and topographic information. Um, and now several scientists are creating geologic maps of smaller areas of the moon using modern data sets. Um, and for us, the ultimate goal is to be able to produce a paper map. Now, all of that product is generated digitally. I mean, everything used to be done by hand using tracing paper and, and, and the like. But now, in this era, era of GIS, everything is produced digitally, is available digitally, but there's still this wonderful thing about being able to produce a paper geologic map. I don't know if it's just a... Uh, historic thing that we all enjoy mm -hmm. or if it's, it's if there's something more to it than just the uh, um, the, the thrill of having something you've made turn into a, a physical object mm -hmm. and it actually exists in paper format. Yeah, we have a couple of those legacy lunar atlases mm -hmm. in our museum mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, and they're I mean, they're really cool and I think it's important for people of a certain generation to remember that things used to be printed mm -hmm. and that, but that became, I mean, those atlases, those early lunar atlases are, I mean, they're not just collector's items, but they're, I mean, they're really important because it's the archive, it's the record of that work um, in as best possible form as it exists. Is there anything else you want to add? Something that has astonished me in the last 10 years, really, uh, and again, this is in the era when LRO has gotten to the moon. We had the L-Cross uh, impact experiment that came to the moon with us. Um, is how, and maybe I'm paying attention more, maybe as I've gotten older I've just been more attuned to it, but the moon seems to have established its place in the, gosh, this is going to sound really lofty, in the consciousness of the country. And what I mean by that, and not to sound too 
hoity-toity, but what I mean by that is, you know, we just had a full moon on January 1st. There's going to be a full moon on January 31st with an eclipse. We had the solar eclipse last year. There's been these wonderful astronomical events mm -hmm. that people have gone out and I think enjoyed. And people now, you know, it seems to me, I see much more about when we have these quote unquote super moons, these perigee full moons, that that really generates some interest and excitement, that people pay attention to the moon now. And so it's, I'm thrilled that it's in the news when there's a, 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 a beautiful close full moon that I hear about it. And again, maybe I'm listening to it more, but that it seems that there's an awareness that the moon is, is there. I mean, everyone knows the moon's <laughs> there, but the moon is there and important. And so I'm really glad to see that, that that's happening. Um, and I don't know what that's attributed to, but I just think it's whatever it is, is good. And we as lunar scientists, I think, have to grab onto those moments where the moon becomes relevant and say, yes, the moon is relevant and it's important. And guess what? It's also important for all these other reasons. You know, I, I think any time we can get people looking at the moon is is a wonderful thing. Uh, whether you're looking at it naked eye out of your backyard through a telescope or binoculars or you know through the lens of, of our spacecraft orbiting the moon now is a great thing. A great thing indeed. At NGA, we're over the moon about our continual partnership with NASA. Special thanks to Gary, Al, and Noah for letting us experience a special time in history and giving us the excitement to look forward to our lunar future. <laughs>